The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, we share with you an episode from Unstress with Dr. Ron Elric, where I share all things low-carb, healthy fat. We discuss the carbohydrate spectrum and teach you how to work out, firstly, if low-carb is right for you, and secondly, how many grams of carbohydrates per day is appropriate for you. We also explore some of my favorite topics, including food myths, inflammation, gut health, stress, endurance fueling, MAF training, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Steph. Hi, Ron. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Listen now, you've got a book coming out. We're going to be talking about that later, and you've been in this space for a while, but I wonder if you might share with our listener a bit about your own journey to this point. Yeah, for sure. It's quite a long story, but it did start back um, as a teenager, actually, when I decided I wanted to lose weight and dove very deeply into the calorie counting and low-fat world. And, you know, quite um, ironic now, considering what I do for a living, um, and it's obviously very opposite to that, as we'll explore today. But that was the trend back then, um, as your listeners probably know, and um, unfortunately, <laughs> it didn't lead to very good results. I mean, yes, I lost a lot of weight, but um, I had, you know, hormonal problems and I was suffering from, you know, what I believe was depression. It wasn't sort of diagnosed classically, but, you know, looking back, we can clearly see that a significant lack of fats will really cause that imbalance in the brain, considering how much it is made from those good quality fats that we've been told to avoid for the last five decades. Mm, so yeah, <laughs> recurring theme on this podcast, but For we've sure. still got a few hills to climb before we get that message out. But this is what this is all about. Yeah, and go on, and you then. Yeah, yeah so interestingly, um, I was obviously feeling not <laughs> not great, not healthy, and I certainly wasn't feeling very happy. And I met someone who 
encouraged me to try going gluten-free. Now, this is over 10 years ago. I can admit I didn't even know what gluten was, and there certainly wasn't the awareness or education that there is in 2018. I was pretty desperate at the time, though, so I was willing to try anything. Um, And to kind of summarize, it was night and day for me. It was a huge catalyst for my health journey. I didn't, you know, just go gluten-free. I obviously then took a deep dive into looking at the literature and and understanding the benefits of whole food and really learnt firsthand the benefits of real food for health, wellness and longevity. You know, it sparked a big passion and that's when I was inspired to go back to uni and study nutrition at a tertiary level and I, I found my purpose in life. And for me, I can look back again and see that was also a huge part of my healing journey because I was quite lost as a teenager in my early 20s, partying and not taking care of myself because I didn't really have that passion. And nutrition was it. And when I found it, it was a huge catalyst to health, but also the success that I now have a natural nutritionist getting to share my passion with everyone on a day-to-day basis. And you've got a strong connection. You describe yourself as a sports nutritionist as well. And what, tell us a bit about that. What defines that? Thank you. Yeah. So we, I I mean, I personally work with a lot of endurance athletes, um, many other athletes, which I'll get to, but it started with my personal experience doing triathlons. So um, a number of years ago now, I was looking for something to do instead of partying Mm -hmm. and an excuse to be going to bed early at night rather than being out. Um, And some friends of mine were already doing um, triathlons. So I thought, all right, this is going to be something I'm going to give a try. And long story short, I was exposed to the world of, you know, Gatorade and sports gels and the huge volumes of carbohydrates that we're told to consume in the sports nutrition and in the endurance world. And I was just mind blown that we could possibly be fueling our body with this kind of refined sugar and not using our intellect to appreciate that it's probably not the right decision for our metabolism and for controlling inflammation and for our athletic longevity. So again, I was really inspired to dive a little bit deeper. I um, have done a lot of research in with some mentors of mine, including um, Jeff Folek, Dr. Phil Maffetone, and Tim Noakes, mm-hmm. who were well ahead of the curve in the low-carb space and starting to step away and, I guess, buck convention, um, which is what I continue to do. You know, we basically move away from the convention around the fueling and the high-carbohydrate diets and the Gatorade and the pasta party And we focus on fixing the metabolism and teaching the body to burn fat for fuel, which is a huge part of your endurance success. But I believe it's the key to all of our longevity, yeah, because fat is that beautiful, clean fuel. We're moving away from refined sugars, which are very inflammatory. And we know that inflammation is linked with most, if not all, chronic diseases. So it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. We just had the wool pulled over our eyes for so, so long. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to dive into some of that stuff. Just remind our listener what a triathlon is. I mean, there's Ironman, there's triathlon. You've got three three events, but go on just just quickly. Yes, for sure. Thank you for clarifying. (laughs) So a triathlon is an event which includes a swim followed by a bike followed by a run. They have very, like, lots of different distances. 
the most famous is the Ironman, yeah. which is a 3.8-kilometre swim, yep. followed by a 180-kilometre bike ride, finishing would. with a marathon, which is obviously 42.2 kilometres. I mean, so, that's just yeah. amazing that people will put their bodies through that. <laughs> really? And that whole event will take how many on a good to bad range? What would be yeah, a record? So the pros are doing it in under eight hours these days, so professionals under eight, and then you have a cutoff of 17 hours. So more recently there was a, the, I think the now officially the oldest athlete, he was in the 85, I believe, age group, which is mind-blowing, mm. and he made it in under 17 hours, which is what the sort of official time is to be officially classed as an Ironman. So that was mind-blowing in itself as well. It's an extraordinary thing even at eight hours. I mean, mm-hmm. 17, God, but eight hours, you know, to put your body through that, I mean, it goes way past the, uh, you know, the glucose, uh, you know, where where are we getting our energy from mm-hmm. at those levels? I mean, I want to talk to you about what makes sports nutrition particularly challenging when we're putting our body through those extremes. But let's just back up a little bit here and let's go back to some basics because I know you're very, you know, your approach is the the healthy, the the real food. Uh, you've got that acronym JERK. Jeff, is it? Uh, Jeff. Jeff, 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 Jeff. Just eat real food. but And people hear about low carb, but how do we define low carb? Yeah, interesting. I mean, I think that there is a lot of confusion here, so it's a great place for us to be clarifying things. So I intentionally use LCHF as lower carbohydrate healthy fat. And sometimes you see low carb, high fat And sometimes people assume low-carb to be no-carb and it gets very messy Mm. and it can go a little bit pear-shaped. I refer to lower, especially because I believe it to be quite a sliding scale. So let me break that down. We can go as low as 25 grams of carbs a day, which research shows us is a very therapeutic model for reversing type 2 diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and pretty low on that spectrum is where we treat childhood epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Now, that might apply to some of your listeners, but it won't apply to the, to the majority. The other end of the spectrum is 150 grams of carbohydrates per day, which I would pres- prescribe to the few usually young, lean male athletes. So they've got age on their side. They're already um, at an ideal body composition. Male, they obviously don't have the estrogen and the hormonal cycle like us women do at at certain ages of our life, obviously. And finally, very active because, as I always say, your carbohydrate requirements are relative to your exercise or your exercise output. And um, I know you've had Cliff Harvey on the show. He's Mm. a good friend of mine, and he talks about that carbohydrate appropriate. appropriate. And I love I love that because it's not one number that we give out to the world. It's really important that we work out where we fit on that spectrum and I can give you some more clues as to how to help our listeners decide if you'd like. I would. I would. I think that would be, you know, like uh, you've you've reached the 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 bottom line there of the therapeutic mm-hmm. type 2 epilepsy and we know and we've spoken to a few people about the power of a ketogenic because we're mm-hmm. heading into ketosis there on neurological conditions and and uh, then you've got your young lean males there's a few people in between that scale isn't there yeah there is so in general it depends on 
a few factors. Now, firstly, if you wanted to take the deep dive, you would actually get some pathology testing. So a couple of key things to look at is definitely your current level of blood sugar control or blood glucose levels, which is um, more of an indication of sort of that day-to-day response and can give you a bit of an idea of the meal that you ate the night before, that blood test. But taking it one step further, we would look at your glycated hemoglobin, which is known as HbA1c. So that's a diagnostic criteria where where we get above 6% and up to 6.5%, we do get the official diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And then we know our optimal levels are 5.3% or under. So if you get the HbA1c blood test and you're 5.3%, then we can put you you know, towards the higher end of the spectrum because you don't have an underlying degree of carbohydrate intolerance. Conversely, if your HbA1c is 5.7 or anywhere near 6, then that's definitely showing us that you're heading in the wrong direction towards carbohydrate intolerance and there is already an underlying level of that which we need to reverse. So that would put you towards the lower end of the spectrum. Now, to give you some numbers, I'd say around, I actually usually like to prefer to go off 15% of your daily intake. So again, that can change a little bit depending on how much you're eating, Um, but it's going to be somewhere between 50 and 100 grams of carbohydrates per day for the majority, obviously closer to 50 if your HbA1c is higher and then closer to 100 if your HbA1c is that 5.3 or below. Mm. You know, the interesting thing when people start examining this is the, the discipline of weighing and measuring. And, for, and it's not a lifetime thing. It's just something I think you need to do for a week or two just to get your head around what it is you're actually eating, isn't it, to benchmark. Is that how do you, how do you get people going on this? Yeah, great point because logging and weighing and measuring, as you say, I, like, and I don't believe it to be like sustainable. It can mm. cause unhealthy relationships with food and obsessions. But initially, I really do encourage it because there's a huge amount of education that we've been missing in the food space. You would know this. A lot of people don't even know that non-starchy veggies are carbohydrates. So when we log and understand what we're eating, we really learn a lot more about the foods and we can. it means we can be a little bit more strategic. You know, I don't feel this way about keto so much these days, but even sort of five years ago, it was very dogmatic and very restrictive and people were were fearing whole foods, like a little bit of fruit. They were fearing starchy veggies. And I know this these foods might not suit everybody, but you can actually be quite strategic with what you eat in a day when you know what the sum total of your day is. So let's say you want to have a little bit of sweet potato, especially when it is in that sort of cooked and cooled fashion as resistant starch, which supports the beneficial gut flora. Um, You know, you can include that in a low-carb template as long as you're factoring in what everything else looks like in the day. You know, it's it's silly to look at one food in isolation. That's not how the human body works. We've got to look at the bigger picture and and logging your food and and looking at where things fit across a day and across a week is really powerful, I believe. Yeah, Yeah, and I think uh, it's important to kind of benchmark yourself too, to Mm -hmm. just kind of, you know, people throw these terms around, but you've got to know what it means in your own life. I thought that Cliff, uh, and and Cliff Harvey and uh, Grant Schofield were terrific mm-hmm. because uh, 
you know, this idea of we've got to be in ketosis all the time. We've got to be low carb all the time. We've got to be here. We've got to be there. You know, I love their fluidity about it. You know, you were talking about this sliding scale. I, I, I think that's a, that's a great way of approaching it. Let's go back to some basics here too because the other half of the equation is healthy fats. Mm-hmm. And I know our listeners will be reasonably, but let's, let's just give them a, a, a review, a revision of what, what you're meaning by healthy fats. Yes, very good point. So there's two main groups we talk about. Priority number one are our omega-3, so our polyunsaturated fatty acids that are found in foods like olive oil, olive, avocados, nuts and seeds. Uh, And they're obviously really important to downregulate inflammation, being anti-inflammatory in nature, but they have some really amazing hormonal benefits, blood sugar control, satiety, um, they're pretty magic foods if we break them down and all very natural in their whole food state. Most people are pretty comfortable with this group of foods, but our second group are our saturated fats. Now, our poor saturated fats have been taken you know, and completely demonized in the last 50 years. And to put it quite simply, we were brainwashed to believe that saturated fats were directly linked with heart disease Um, they would cause high cholesterol and the low-fat era began. (laughs) And then the margarine industry started, you know. So saturated fats are found in grass-fed butter and ghee, um, coconut and medium chain or our MCT oil. They're found in grass-fed animal products um, and things like other animal fats such as duck fat or lard. So your listeners, not so much because I know how much you talk about this topic, but in my world, a lot of people look at you like you've got two heads when you first tell them they can eat butter or even eat bacon. Like that's mind-blowing for a lot of people because for many of us, we only know low-fat and we've had many people tell us to avoid these foods for so long. Mm. And uh, and actually, soberingly, when one reviews the literature on (laughs) this, it becomes even more disturbing because uh, the literature really doesn't support it very well. You know, the scientific evidence is not there, um, but the commercial evidence is definitely <laughs> there, but the scientific evidence is definitely not there. And the other thing I think people tend to forget is that a food isn't just made up of saturated fat. Almost every food is a combination of the three, you know, saturated, mono and poly, mm-hmm. and saturated in varying degrees. Yeah, great point. Absolutely. <laughs> so, but what and I, some I of think the... about this a lot in the book, actually, because yeah. I actually look way back in time as to where it all started. And and you're probably aware of this, but it's really fascinating to look at how science was back then. And it was literally three Harvard researchers that were paid the equivalent of, um, I think I think it would be fifty thousand dollars to the, in this day. Um, but they were paid that much money to hide the research on sugar. Now conveniently paid by the Sugar Foundation and to present this research that saturated fat has had a correlation with cardiovascular disease. So very poor science, obviously would never fly these days, but, yes, thank God we've come a long way. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, you know, it's a story that is very easy to miss, but once you hear it, very difficult to ignore. What are some of the, like when it comes to low-carb, high-fat, you know, or lower, I like that, lower-carb, healthy fats, um, what are some of the myths? What are some of the misconceptions about this approach? Mm, yeah, really good question. I mean, the whole fat makes you fat thing is one of the big ones, I think, yeah. in in yeah. at least in the 
more diet space, yeah, because everyone that's done a low-calorie diet has been essentially eating low-fat, high-carbohydrate, so that upside-down template. And similarly, we've been told to avoid these foods not only for cardiovascular disease risk reduction but to lose fat. And it's the the unfortunate reality that the word is the same, um, but they have very different meanings. So the mantra that we use is fat helps you burn fat. And for a lot of people that's something they sort of almost wrote learn initially to retrain their brain to not be afraid of getting fat by eating a food that contains healthy fat. So that's a big one in in my world. Um, But very life-changing when someone has the epiphany and to understand the physiology behind it, as, as we know, fats keep our insulin levels low and that's the goal yeah because insulin is a fat storage hormone so we want that hormone to be low to to allow us to burn fat for fuel and then the magic is you don't have to do it with calorie counting and restriction and flogging yourself at the gym which was the calorie fallacy of especially the 80s and 90s where you know what we were told to do is eat less and move more Mm -hmm. yeah calories in calories out i guess that's another huge myth Yes. Sort of oversimplified everything. I like that, though. Fats help you burn fat. Um, now, you mentioned chronic inflammation as the common denominator and in, in almost, I think, in all chronic diseases. Now, if our listener wanted to reduce the effects of chronic inflammation, what, what you mentioned gluten, but, but what's some mm-hmm. of the foods we should be avoiding and focusing on? Yeah, really good question. I mean, there's there's some top ones. I mean, the first would be absolutely refined sugar. And I, I think that you'd have to be living under a rock to have not learned about the impact of sugar in the last sort of five years, especially in Australia with the IQS movement, which has done some amazing things for our awareness and obviously followed by that sugar film. Um, so definitely refined sugar, which is most obviously found in like junk foods that are sweet in nature, but they sneak it in everywhere because it's a cheap commodity. Um, and it's highly addictive. It's more addictive than a recreational drug. So it traps us in a bit of a vicious cycle if we um, do consume too much because we're bound by that addiction and, and the blood sugar roller coaster that it does put us on. So it's a big one and a really important um, one to tackle. Like I personally don't consume refined sugar like hand in my heart ever. I mean, there might be the occasional mouthful of dessert I'd sneak in once a year, but I don't expect everyone to go that far. But it's the awareness of what you're putting in your body. And, you know, naturally when you look at our acronym JERF, which is just eat real food, you are going to be removing the refined sugar. You are going to be gluten-free by default. Now, this is, I think gluten is can be a bit of a controversial topic. It depends on who you talk to. There's an abundance of research that it's a major contributing cause to leaky gut, which in the literature is known as that increased intestinal permeability. That's going to be inflammation 101, yeah? If your small intestine, which has an outside covering that should look like a fly screen, if that fly screen has big tears in it, then you can imagine what happens, yeah? We get undigested food particles. We get this inflammatory cascade that creates a whole host of problems. And we know that all disease starts in the gut and so too does all health. So what we eat is so, so important, especially because it really impacts the state of our gut. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a big one, isn't it? And, and, I, and I know we've covered this in, in our podcast before, but some of the modern, you know, we think, is this a new trend? Has this become trendy and all this? But actually the wheat that we're consuming now is very different from the wheat that was consumed in those in, in the old days when let, 
bread be thy food or whatever the Bible said <laughs> or feed them bread, you know, but the modern uh, semi-dwarfed high-yield wheat variety is higher in gluten. Absolutely. And even, I mean, you would know about glyphosate, but mm. this week in the media we see articles coming out, is it wheat or is it the glyphosate? And there's obviously that additional factor that our food is being sprayed with Roundup and we don't have the genetic capacity or the tolerance for these chemicals that we're being exposed to against our wills. So naturally when you start to move away from gluten and refined grains, you're starting to decrease your exposure to glyphosate, which is also a neurotoxin and that's a very important health decision to make. And it's mostly found in grains, but unfortunately our crops are being affected as well. So Mm. that's where we start to look at Australia's version of the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen and thinking about where we can prioritise organic if, if that's possible for us to add into the equation. Yeah, because that glyphosate, we had a, a podcast where we talked to Charles Massey and he made the mm-hmm. point that uh, there were in the October Beer Festival there were 12 beers that were uh, analysed and had uh, glyphosate in them. Wow. <laughs> so it's getting it's everywhere, and it's a yeah, major it? it's a major thing. So yeah, gl- sugar, gluten, yeah, obviously um, glyphosate. I think it's always interesting mm-hmm. when we talk about uh, organic food. Is you know the the research goes well. There's no different in nutrient quality in organic or not organic, and well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but there's a big difference in what isn't in the food. Not so much what is in the food, but what isn't in the food. But anyway, what what else we got in the terms of reducing inflammation? Yeah, so if I was to round things out with another two, we're looking at reducing our intake of the polyunsaturated omega-6 fats. Now, it's not about um, removing them altogether, but we really want to look for that beautiful one-to-one ratio in relation to our omega-3. So omega-6s can be found in things like sunflower oil, um, but they're also in huge quantities found in things like the old-school canola, safflower, Um, and any of the more grain-based oils which belong in the bin, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So moving away from those horrifically refined foods, uh, refined oils especially, um, and trans fats. So you're really getting trans fats if you're eating a lot of um, baked goods and pastries and junk food and deep-fried food. So, again, if you make your one goal to be jerf, just eat real food, you'll be significantly reducing, if not eliminating, these foods anyway. And then we focus on what we are eating. Like I think it's really good to discuss what to avoid, but we don't want to have that mentality of what I can't eat. Mm -hmm. I always try and turn it upside down and talk about let's talk about what we're going to be putting on our plate and what we can eat and the benefits of that as a result. Yeah, and, and, uh, well, real food's a great place to start, isn't it? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a very simple principle to follow. Absolutely. <laughs> um, listen, you sports. Uh, well, yeah. Well, I think the you've you've touched on this why this approach can have such a profound effect on, on disease mm-hmm. management. But I'm back to sports. I'm intrigued about that. And um, you mentioned uh, the fueling for some of these long term events and the fact that you know Gatorade, sports gels, uh, carbs. You know, we we thought that you had to carb load to fuel the body. How has that changed? How do you how do you, how do you advise? You know, an athlete comes in and goes, "Look, I'm I'm on all of these great sports drinks and I'm carb loading before," and you go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Let's mm-hmm. rethink that." What are you saying to that person? Yeah, so the education begins with looking at what we call the dual fuel system. So Grant Schofield talks about this a lot 
when he does discuss the concept metabolic flexibility. So let's break that down. If you eat a lot of carbohydrates, like try and follow the food pyramid, if you're following conventional fueling guidelines, as you say, lots of sports drinks, then you have access to one fuel tank only. That's the glycogen that you store in the muscle, which is how we store carbohydrate in the body. And if you're lucky, you've got a couple of hours worth. The analogy we like to associate to it is like a petrol running car, a car that runs on petrol. So you have to go to the petrol station all the time. Then the other option is our diesel engine. And anyone that drives a diesel car would know the difference in the frequency of attending the petrol station. Now that diesel engine is how or when we can burn fat for fuel. So that is essentially an unlimited tank. Like I'm talking hundreds of thousands of calories available, which is more than more than enough for many Ironman and beyond mm. um, that most of us have on board but can't access. So the best of both worlds is what we call metabolic flexibility. So you change what you eat and what you do and, and how you live to become fat adapted or able to access that diesel engine, that fat for fuel, but you don't drive your carbs down too low to miss out on your petrol tank or what we also refer to as the glycolytic tank, which is actually really important for periods of high intensity. So it's a dual fuel system. We are able to rely on both rather than just one, which is that glucose or glycogen, um, which the majority of the world, unfortunately, can only access because of, at least in the West, our dietary guidelines to date. Mm. So you need to, I mean, you need to be preparing for this and switching your body to be this metabolically flexible machine. Uh, how, you know, and that is, I guess, uh, by by going lower carb and healthy mm -hmm. fat in, in the weeks, months, I mean, in your life. Being like that in life is a way of preparing for the event or do they need to prepare in a in a more specific way? Yeah, we definitely start with the foundations of like what their food pyramid then looks like. So, you know, we get them to build their plate with an abundance of non-starchy veggies, small amounts of quality protein, healthy fats, and we have a concept that we refer to as nutrient timing, which is where we prioritize some whole food carbohydrates in the meal that you eat in the hour after high-intensity exercise. So that's an important part of the recovery process. It enables us to top up that muscle glycogen so we've still got access to that glycolytic tank that we discussed before that's used for periods of high-intensity and helps our performance, our top end, as we say. So that's what we're doing day to day. There's other things to consider, though. As we know, with stress, stress management is a huge part of the equation because you can be as low carb as, you know, you think you need to be. But if you're chronically stressed and your body is producing high cortisol, the result of that will be for your liver to dump glucose into the bloodstream, which will spark your insulin and switch off your fat burning. So I have a more holistic approach with all of my clients and my athletes in particular because they do a lot of training and that in itself is a stressor. So we have to look at how we can balance that out across the week. I don't look at it, I don't look at stress being a problem in itself because we know that that's really healthy in the right dose, but it's often the absence of relaxation or the absence of what we would call the yin, the yin to the yang that's missing in a lot of people's lives. 
And then we also explore training. Like too many athletes do all high intensity thinking that's the answer to get faster. And what actually happens is they get burnt out, injuries, inflamed, adrenal issues, hormonal dysregulation, and they end up having to retire from the sport early. So we have to re-educate them on how to train. And we follow a very good friend of mine, Dr. Phil Maffetone, has something called the MAF method. And it's where you actually spend 80% of your week training at a low intensity, which is that aerobic or fat burning zone. And then only 20% is high intensity or glycolytic. So a lot of education around that, which I've also built into my online program, LCHF Endurance, because you, you have to factor that in because training at high intensity all week is actually like to be completely blunt, unintelligent, and it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. I mean, exercise, I, I love this word that I've learned along the way, hormesis. You know, mm-hmm. we put our body under intentional stress and that's what these. So that's what exercise is, which is a good thing. It's like taking a cold shower, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, to be doing that for hour after hour after hour in your training is, is that, that's putting your body under a lot of stress. I mean, that's taking hormesis beyond uh, being therapeutic. Yeah, exactly. And you've got to factor that in, which is why it really needs to be holistic. I think yeah. some people can get a little bit too focused on carbs only. And, like, again, like, you know, I love my athletes, but they're most often quite A-type in nature, which is very black and white, and I believe that results happen in the grey. And so my role is to pull people out of those extremes and teach them how to sort of usually soften um, and look at the longevity of the approach as well. Yeah. You mentioned uh, after an endurance event that they they'd have a carb meal an hour or so after to promote recovery. How do they prepare when you were doing your when when somebody let's not say this is you when you when people are doing their triathlon um, how how should they be preparing in the hour or hours leading up to an event? Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, a lot of it depends on what you've done in your training. Yeah, so nothing new happens on race day is what we always say. So let's break this down. If if we're looking at um, Our training, so most of our training is actually going to be done in the fasted state, so before we eat food. Like it doesn't mean nothing. There are options including like black coffee or a bulletproof coffee or your version of that, but we don't want to have any circulating glucose so we can burn fat for fuel at least for the first couple of hours depending on our current ability to access fat. Now, a lot of people can actually then do that exact strategy on race day. It's very overwhelming to learn that for the first time, that it is possible to not have your Vegemite on toast before you do an endurance event because that's what you've been told, um, probably even on Ironman.com. And it's it's really hard to get your head around not eating breakfast when you're staring down the barrel of 8 to 17 hours. But it's, it's not no food. Like you don't do an Ironman with nothing. It is going to involve some sports fueling. So the way you've got to break it down in your mind is thinking about, okay, how long does my swim take in this case and how long will I then be on the bike where I can start refueling? For a lot of people, that's anywhere between an hour and an hour and a half, and they've done way more than that in training. They've been doing two hours or more empty. Mm. So it's definitely possible. It's just that it's so against what we've been told you need to like just rip the Band-Aid off and do it once to prove it to yourself that it's not going to go totally pear-shaped. And then we build in a strategy that is also practiced in training 
to, as to how we fuel from that bike to marathon to get us across the line. Now, the whole goal when you're fat adapted is that you need very little. Many, many athletes that I meet have been taught to literally cram in as much as possible so that they're basically vomiting up what they're putting in. Mm. And it's just so unintelligent and inefficient, especially when we consider the cost of digestion. So, you know, digestion is obviously going to send blood flow to the gut. If you're putting in 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour, which tends to be the upper recommendation, you're playing a massive game of tug of war and you're not getting the blood flow out to the heart, legs and lungs, which is where it needs to be in an event clearly. Mm. So it also means that you're taking on a lot of fructose, which is one of the most inflammatory sugars that also causes gastrointestinal distress for a lot of people, which is why we see athletes in the bushes with things coming out of either end. And, again, it's so avoidable when we learn to optimise our metabolism and we can literally take our fueling back by half or two-thirds when we know we've got that diesel tank to rely on and we're just topping up with small amounts of usually like minimal refined carbohydrates. I mean, there are some athletes that get away with a little bit on race day, but Again, I'm not completely extreme. I look at what we do the majority of the time, not what we do every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Wow, I can just imagine athletes coming to see you, Steph, who have heard this. It's like like the low-fat uh, dogma mm-hmm. that everyone's so used to. You know, no, this can't be. What you're telling me can't possibly be. <laughs> and actually, you've got to rip the Band-Aid off. I love that too. Listen, mm-hmm. if someone... Let's. Uh, if someone was wanting to make that change, who is accepting that lower carb and healthy fat is a good approach to have in their lives, what would be a few tips, say three, four or five tips to just get them started on their journey? Yeah, for sure. I think it's definitely changing how you build your plate. Um, so most of us are putting in those carbohydrates with every meal. So we want to obviously switch to whole food carbohydrates like which would be a little bit of fruit and preferably resistant starch, you know, cooked and cooled sweet potato, potato, white rice, which can be reheated. And as I said, that goes in the post-training meal, basically only. Like we really don't need carbohydrates at any other time, um, especially when we're more sedentary during the day because we won't burn that fuel, we'll just store it, yeah, which is the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. So I think it's absolutely changing um, how you build your plate. I would look at, I would look closely at your training and the ratio of aerobic to anaerobic training to make sure that we are getting closer to the 80-20, so 80% aerobic, 20% intensity. Um, But I would circle back around and encourage you to start to look at your gut health because you can eat all the real food in the world. You are what you eat, but you are what you absorb. So many athletes are missing out on this component because they either haven't been taught or they're just following blanket advice they've read online. And Dr. Google can be pretty (laughs) helpful at times, but it can also lead to a lot of issues. And at my clinic, at The Natural Nutritionist, we encourage everyone to get a fully comprehensive stool test called a fecal microbial analysis. So in summary, that looks at all of the beneficial bacteria that do or do not live inside your large intestine and if there are parasites or overgrowth that need to be dealt with to address long-term health. But performance, because if you're not absorbing the nutrients that you're eating, you're not going to get the best out of your food nor your body. So we have to be looking at, you know, healing and sealing the gut with foods like 
bone broth. We need to be consuming our resistant starch, which a lot of people completely cut out when they go low carb because they're afraid of potatoes. Um, and we've also got this sort of fear in the West about FODMAP foods when FODMAP stands for the fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, and they can ferment in the gut and cause typical irritable bowel syndrome or symptoms, I should say. Um, but ironically, the onions, legs, garlics, artichokes, and asparagus are really, really great prebiotic foods, and we need these prebiotics to feed the probiotics, the beneficial gut flora that have such integral roles for, you know, absorption of the food that we're eating, but production of serotonin, our immune system, down-regulating inflammation, and the list goes on. Mm. And then we need beneficial probiotics, but people are drinking kombucha like it's soft drink, they're creating yeast overgrowths, and they're not looking for diversity. You know, the, the ultimate goal for our gut is to look like this beautiful rainforest. So visualize one in your mind's eye for me now and think about what you'd like your rainforest to look like. If the only probiotic you're consuming is kombucha, it will look like one tree in that entire rainforest. If you eat the same food all the time, you'll do the same thing. Your rainforest will become very low in diversity. So two very basic but extremely important goals are food diversity and then diversity in your probiotics or fermented foods and drinks. And it, you know, you don't need a degree in nutrition to understand that, but we are all, I think, a little bit too habitual sometimes and it starves our gut and we end up paying for it as a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, look, that, it's been terrific. I, I've got so much out of this. Look, I want to just finishing up now, Steph, mm-hmm. I'm just taking a step back from your role as a nutritionist and, uh, and sports nutritionist. And bearing in mind we're all on this health journey through life, what do you think the biggest challenge is for people today in our modern world on that journey? I honestly think the challenge is lack of prioritising time, a lack of dedicating time to this goal because in the West most food is going to be carbohydrate. You know, think about what you've got available to you when you're on the go or grabbing something quickly. Rarely are you really going to get lots of non-starchy veggies, quality proteins and healthy fats. I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's a lot more effort. Now, we always talk about this hour of power on a Sunday, which is food prep to set your week up, whether you make your frittata for breakfast or you make a slow-cooked meal for the week when you know you're going to be busy. But the one thing is, is like you can't just do that one week. (laughs) You can't prep food one week. You've got to do it as part of the lifestyle change. And when you find a way to make that fit in your busy week, everything flows. It's a huge catalyst for for you know, things to be heading in the right direction. But I think a lot of people drop that ball and then they, they pay for it because they're eating quick food and eating more carbohydrates, feeling tired, having cravings, and it's all a direct cause of our previous food choices. So carving out time and making it a priority every week is the answer to make this sustainable and look after your longevity. Steph, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Look, we're going to have links to your website and this great new book that's coming out at the end of November. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I love what you do. It's so great to be on your podcast and let's connect again soon. Thanks, Steph. I love that term, 
hour of power on Sunday. I actually love to get lost in the kitchen and often spend hours preparing food on Sundays. It's meditative, creative, satisfying mentally and physically. I love to fill the fridge up with some good dinners, pate, roasted vegetables. Oh, I could, I could go on. But it highlights that being organized is an important part of your week. Uh, I also love this uh, Just Eat Real Food message. Simple but profound. Isn't it also interesting to see athletes discovering low-carb healthy fats and not just surviving, but thriving? Have a listen to the episode I did with Dr. Gary Fetke, the orthopedic surgeon from Tasmania, who was taken to task by the medical profession for, wait for it, championing the low-carb healthy fat advice, having seen the ravages of the low-fat food pyramid approach. And contrary to industry-sponsored advice that comes from most professional organizations. Just to remind us that there is justice in this world, he was, of course, completely exonerated just recently. That episode was earlier this year, as well as two more recent ones with Cliff Harvey and Professor Grant Schofield. Now, we'll have links to Steph's website, The Natural Nutritionist, uh, and her new book, Low-Carb Healthy Fat Nutrition. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.